Well, this week on the podcast, I'm joined by Professor Philip Goff. I wanted to have Philip on the show uh, quite a long time ago before I had to mothball when Belief dies for, for mental health reasons. Um, and it's been a little bit of time to get him to come back on just due to clashes and issues on, on both sides. But um, it was so good to finally sit down with, with Philip. And I feel like the delay in having him on meant that we switched the conversation topic from consciousness um, to looking at some of his new work. He's investigating a space, and we talk about that today, um, around sort of theism and atheism and the arguments for and against both sides and how a middle ground uh, might be more effective uh, for the conversation to push things forward and to honestly explore uh, both spaces, both camps uh, in a more holistic way. Um, it was a great conversation. I've got a lot of time for Philip and I'm really looking forward to his book coming out in 2023, hopefully. Uh, so yeah, there are links to his other works in the description. So make sure you check those out um, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. As always, if you're new here, it'd be amazing if you'd like this video and then hit subscribe and then hit the notification bell. And then you'll be reminded whenever When Belief Dies release the video. And everybody, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Philip Goff. Cheers. Welcome to When Belief Dies. The aim of this podcast and YouTube channel is to have conversations that honestly reflect on faith religion and life. We aim to bring you a conversation that explores belief with a variety of guests from various parts of the world, delving into why some subscribe to a specific religion and or denomination and why others have either never believed or decided to walk away from a framework of belief. The more we can understand about why somebody holds or rejects a specific religious position, the more honest we can be with the positions we hold ourselves as we strive to believe as many true things as possible. This is why it's great to have you with me as together we can explore this space. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hello and welcome to another episode of When Belief Dies. My name's Sam. Today I'm joined by Professor Philip Goff. Philip, it's great to have you on the show. Hello, Sam. Good to be here. It's been, it's been a while. We keep postponing, don't we? But I'm glad we, we finally managed to do this. Yeah, it has been it has been a little while. I know we kind of had you booked on for like a live stream and then I stopped the podcast for a bit and then we've been trying to get you back on the show and, and have this conversation. But um, I kind of feel, feel like it might be quite a good thing. I know in the past you've spoken heavily on consciousness and we were going to initially talk about that, but then we've kind of slowly shifted the conversation as you've been doing a lot more writing and a lot more sort of um, investigation into the sort of theism, uh, atheism, naturalism sort of space. Um, which I think will be a really, really enlightening conversation. And you've spoken on a few channels um, on it. So it'd be, it'd be really cool to touch that, I think. So um, before I let you do that, though, it'd be really cool if you could just give us a bit of an overview of your sort of journey uh, into this space, your sort of profession, uh, your sort of, um, yeah, I guess, work with consciousness and why you've started beginning to look now at more of the sort of uh, kind of philosophy of religion space. Mm, yeah, thanks. <clears throat> so I'm um, a philosopher at Durham University in the far north of England here and I guess consciousness as you say has been my main thing I mean, I guess more generally I've, uh, my philosophical drive's always been the nature of reality and wrestling with things that it's hard to fit into our conventional scientific story of reality so there are you know a number of these things like free will um, morality, 
uh, abstract objects that mathematics seems to talk about. You know, so how do all these things fit into our normal story of physics and chemistry and so on that that we tend to think of as defining the nature of reality? But consciousness, I, th- I always thought, is is the most challenging one because it's the one that it's so hard to deny it exists. With, with other philosophically troubling phenomena, it, it at least seems an option to say you know, maybe it doesn't exist, maybe um, maybe we're not really free in the way we think we are, maybe, um, maybe there aren't really facts about value. But with consciousness, you know, the, the reality is just so, you know, if you're in pain or something, it's so hard to deny you're feeling pain. So it's, 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 it's so evident it's reality and yet it's so hard to fit into our standard scientific story. So that's what I've been obsessed with for ages. I've defended, I guess there's been a negative aspect and a positive aspect to my work. I've I've critiqued materialist theories of consciousness. I guess the kind of conventional scientific view that it's we can somehow explain consciousness in terms of the chemistry of the brain. And then as an alternative, I've defended a panpsychist view where consciousness is in some sense a fundamental and ubiquitous feature of the physical world and our consciousness is built up from simpler forms of consciousness that are there at the fundamental level of reality. So I've written an academic book on this called Consciousness and Fundamental Reality, and then I, a few years later I wrote a book aimed at a general audience, Galileo's Error. So yeah, but um, but more generally I'm just interested in the nature of reality, and I suppose, wow, why, why have I... Um, I suppose it's just continuing on that thread, really, of... Uh, the big questions of the nature of reality and probably if I say a bit more we'll, we'll get to, we'll get too deeply into the issue straight away but just a thirst to try and have the best guess at the nature of reality that we're capable of and that's what obsesses me and and that's what I'm continuing to do in this new project and you seem to um you seem to have a really good ability to um sketch out the, the so for instance if we look at consciousness briefly uh, you sketch out very well sort of um materialism and dualism um, and then you also kind of sketch out sort of a sort of a, a critical third way uh, being being panpsychism pulling in lots of resource and information and you do that in quite a uh, quite a, a kind way i think to to all views um and you kind of seem to in your uh, at least at least in your tweets that i've seen so far be doing a similar thing with religion right you seem to be looking at the sort of class classic um, theistic approach and kind of breaking that down a little bit and then looking at the classic atheistic approach and beginning to kind of deconstruct that and potentially once again coming to more of a sort of agnostic third way that you're going to be uh, potentially kind of uh, yeah exploring further in your book uh, whenever that's kind of finalized and, and released which I'm really excited about um, but um, I think it'd be really interesting to kind of dive into those two spaces around kind of theism and where for you um, it, it solves issues and where it diminishes things and then atheism potentially the same thing where that kind of provides potential solutions but then again fails um, and then kind of where this third way is kind of what what are the what does it look like and, and do we have any do we actually have any more certainty in that space to the nature of reality or is it more of actually a hands open we're not actually quite sure uh, still but actually being honest about that is probably the best option so yeah if you don't mind it'd be really cool to get into that should we should we hit theism first let's go for it um yeah, I think. Well, thanks for the kind words, and I think you've got that spot on. Actually, I, I I always feel I don't fit nicely into the dichotomies. You know, you have these sort of teams. That, you know, 
which side are you on? Are you on the side of Richard Dawkins or the Pope? Are you, you know, are you, are you a communist or a capitalist? And, you know, I always find I don't fit nicely into these dichotomies. And so, yeah, in, in terms of philosophy of consciousness, when I was an undergraduate, we were taught it was you're either a dualist, you think consciousness is non-physical, outside of the body and the brain, in some sense, or you're a materialist, you think consciousness can be explained in terms of the chemistry of the brain. And I got really disillusioned because I thought both of these have big problems. And it's the same in, in um, with the theism issue, really. I think you know, it's partly teaching philosophy of religion, actually. I teach second-year philosophy of mind and second-year philosophy of religion undergraduate. And, you know, you, the standard course, you know, you teach these arguments for God's existence. You teach these arguments, you know, the big one against God's existence being suffering and evil. Um, and I ended up thinking, you know, you're supposed to choose which is the more compelling argument. And I ended up thinking, actually, the, I think these arguments on both sides seem pretty compelling. And actually, they're not contra they're not contradicting each other, surprisingly. Uh, so, you know, for example, I find something like the fine-tuning argument um, I really think there's something compelling there and and you know I sort of think maybe there's cultural reasons why why it's it's not it is taken very seriously but it's not taken more seriously um maybe we don't have to speculate about why people believe what they believe but anyway the fine tuning argument on the one hand and then on the other hand the uh problem of evil and suffering for god and I, I, you know I I think these are both to my mind really compelling arguments but actually I think there are views that can accommodate both. And so, to my mind, that's that's where the evidence is pointing. Um, so, yeah, so which, where, where do you want to get? That, that's a kind of overview, I suppose. Uh, where do you want to dive into with more specifically, maybe? Or Yeah, no, that's, um, that's, that's really, that's really helpful, I think. So, um, I mean, I, so I, just, just to give you some background on myself, so you understand where I'm coming from this as well, that'd be quite helpful, I think. So I'm, um, kind of born and raised conservative Christianity, um, uh, many uh, many years kind of um yeah going through that space basically and then um uh, yeah started to um begin to want to explore a little bit more about kind of what this idea of god looks like and then eventually kind of found that i sort of lost my belief in in a in a deity essentially um so i think it would be helpful to begin to look at probably the sort of theistic elements you're saying kind of uh, fine tuning uh, there seems to be a strong case for that at least to uh, purports to some sort of being um that could have kind of create stuff or even maybe some sort of substrate um that could have brought about um the sort of elements required to bring us into existence as we are today um i know a lot of kind of theists um hear the idea of fine tuning and begin to go down a bit of a rabbit hole and somehow uh link the idea that they could be a sort of being or substrate that has enabled this to all come about therefore their version of belief is correct you know jesus was a literal figure died was risen again all the miracles happened it's you know bona fide because of fine tuning i find there seems to be a weird sort of link between the two of those um so where do you kind of begin to sketch yourself then philip around the sort of idea of, of fine tuning what is it what is it about fine tuning that's kind of captured your attention and kind of made you go actually there might be more here than we uh necessarily always let on if we're holding a sort of materialistic worldview um so you're willing to let the door open on fine tuning and then what is it that you kind of say well this is what's exciting in this space and how do you then kind of stop the sort of um 
I guess the tire rolling down the, the hill too fast as it can do with a lot of theists to, you know, bona fide Christianity or Islam or, or whatever the sort of uh, classic theistic religion that they're coming from. So they want to they want to link the two together. So I think that'd be a really interesting space to begin with. So uh, yeah, if you don't mind, what is it about fine tuning and how do you stop it becoming a kind of classic theistic religion? Yeah, that's a good that's a good way of setting it up. I think. So, I mean, just to get clear on what precisely fine-tuning is, the way I define it, it's the discovery of the last few decades that for life to be possible, certain numbers in physics had to fall in, in a certain very narrow range. So one of the most, is just to give a concrete example, the um, we discovered in 1998 that the universe is accelerating in its expansion there is a repulsive force um accelerating it uh which we refer to as dark energy or the cosmological constant um and we know now that if 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 that force had been um slightly weaker gravity would have overpowered it in the first split second of the universe everything would have collapsed back on itself that would have been it if that um, uh, force had been slightly stronger, everything would have shot apart so fast that gravity could never get a grip and clump things into stars and planets and any kind of complex structure. So we wouldn't have had any kind of chemistry. No two particles would have met. So it really needed to form in that, to, to, the number, the, the cosmological constant, which measures the the acceleration of the universe needed to form fall in that um narrow if you like goldilocks range you know goldilocks but not too hot not too cold uh and on the face of it it looks like the odds of the, getting that right number for uh, any kind of chemical complexity and therefore life by sheer chance is just um ludicrously improbable i mean you know, so you get so online, you know, some responses from people say, oh, improbable things happen. I think we've, we feel we can say that because it's quite an abstract issue. But, I mean, the kind of odds we're talking about, you know, I don't think in any ordinary life we'd just say, so, you know, blase, oh, well, it's just shit ha it happened, you know. It's just so improbable that it was happen it happened by chance. So so what's going on here? I think, um, and, and I think you asked the right question, Sam, you know, um, what what's the minimal hypothesis this is supporting uh so so we don't get too carried away is this you know proving the nicene creed or something what's the minimal hypothesis what, the way i define it in, in my in my new book um which i'm currently working on hopefully out sometime next year uh, i was hoping it, it was going to be summer 23 i think it's going to be a bit later than that now but anyway um i'm currently working on reviewers comments four sets of reviewers comments uh, anyway, sorry, I'm digressing. So the minimal hypothesis I define as um, that those numbers are as they are because they're the right numbers for life. So I, I, I think it's, it's, it's incredibly improbable that it's exactly the right numbers by chance. And the alternative is that those are the right numbers because, sorry, sorry, let me say that again, that those numbers are as they are because they are the right numbers for life. Therefore, that there is a sort of goal-directedness at the fundamental level of reality in that very early stage of the universe. Now, that's a very general hypothesis. 
and people say, okay, God, so you mean God, God's fiddling with the numbers. Well, that's one option. That is one option. Um, it's not an option I'm very keen on because of evil and suffering, which we could maybe get onto. But there are other alternatives. So in my book, I, I, I explore three general hypotheses. One, um, teleological laws. This is a, a hypothesis explored by Thomas Nagel in his 2012 book, Mind and Cosmos, that there are laws of nature with goals built into them. So we tend to think of, of laws of nature as just sort of going from past to future, you know, the, determining, you know, what's happening at one moment determines what's happening at the next moment. But teleological laws sort of work from future to present, future to past or future to present. Th things happen because they are conducive towards a goal such as life in the far future. So that's one option. Another option is a non-standard designer, um, maybe a bad god, an amoral god, an indifferent god, a god of limited power, a god who's, uh, you know, trying to create a good universe, but can't just create complex life like that, you know, or like by breathing into the dust as we see depicted in Genesis. And so the only way, maybe the only way God can create a universe is by starting off a universe with the right physics and it'll eventually evolve intelligent life. And God's thinking, oh no, it's going to be messy, you know, but um, I'm really sorry about that, but this is, th it's this or nothing, you know, so that's one option. Or the simulation hypothesis, often more attractive to naturalistic minded philosophers that maybe, you know, we're in some kind of simulation, maybe some kind of simulation just created by uh, creatures in the next universe up doing some experiments or trying to work out what certain what a certain kind of universe will evolve into. Um, so that's that, that's the second one, a kind of non non standard designer, and the third option is cosmopsychism. That, and you know, this is what I've defended: the panpsychist views. Certain forms of panpsychist views hold that the universe itself is some kind of conscious entity, and you know, if you've got a universe that is a conscious entity and there seems to be some kind of goal directedness, well, maybe that's just the goal-directedness of, the, of the, the conscious mind that is the universe, sort of maybe in some sense the universe fine-tuned itself. So, so these are three hypotheses I'm open to and explore. And, um, you know, I think, I, to my mind, the evidence is pointing somewhere in between theism and classic theism and classic atheism. And, you know, we need to get on with trying to work out what's, what, what's the best hypothesis. And this is, I suppose, a, a first step at doing that. Yeah, I find um, I find the simulation hypothesis to be a really interesting one because, as you mentioned, the sort of the sort of numbers and the the constants needed to get us to where we are today are um, you know if you, you can go away and look at the maths and it's just it's absolutely incredible. Um, and you know, it's it, it kind of skeptics tend to say sort of things like um, you know, well, if if it wasn't the case that we were here, we wouldn't be able to look at the situation to kind of say that we're here, which sounds weird, but basically they're trying to say that of course those are the numbers, because if they weren't the numbers, we would never be here to ask those questions. So, you know, they, it, it must just kind of come about and they kind of then sti uh, stipulate or uh, begin to explore the idea of um, sort of, um, a, sort of a, a multiverse, which I know you've addressed elsewhere on, on, on other shows before, um, but I find the idea of a simulation um, to be exceptionally interesting 
interesting because, and this is going on a bit of a tangent, but it, um, it kind of feeds into a little bit of um, people's idea of uh, purpose and their idea of um, destiny. Um, it might sound really strange, but there are certain characters within history who seem to have a, uh, a feeling throughout their lives of they're going to go on to become these sort of classic uh, destiny figures. Like an example would be Winston Churchill from a very young age uh, believed he would go on to save Great Britain from some sort of invasion. And lo and behold, you know, 40 years later or 50 years later, you know, he's kind of the prime minister during World War Two, and he's, he's literally doing what he thought he would be doing when he's like a teenager, which is fascinating, this idea of destiny. And it's, there's almost seems to be this sort of, um, you know, kind of print on individuals to suggest that there is something they're trying to get towards, um, even if they're not quite sure uh, how they're going to bring that about. Um, so I don't know, could you kind of sketch out the simulation hypothesis a little bit more and kind of, and and I guess for me, the, the, the way it breaks down is, is, is it's kind of, it's laid, you're just kind of pushing your, if you stipulate this, the simulation hypothesis to be correct, you're pushing the issue just to another layer you can't get to, like there are you know, advanced aliens or you know some other sort of species that's got us on a floppy disk somewhere and is kind of programming us to see how we'd respond in situations. But then you kind of got the same thing, well, they're going to have to have certain constants to bring themselves about anyway as well. So there's still the same problem there. So it kind of, it, it's an interesting hypothesis, but it doesn't seem to actually kind of get us uh, much further than A to begin with. Like we want to get from A to B, right? But it seems to just be, you know, it could be going back to A just from looking at it as a sort of concept. I don't know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you worry about this. It's the equivalent of a who designed the designer objection or something. But um, yeah, just, I mean, just start briefly on the point you touched on there about what I think is the most common response to fine-tuning online, which is, well, if it if it hadn't been fine-tuned, we wouldn't be here to, to know about it. Um, people often give this bloody Douglas Adams puddle thing I've had about a million times. Uh, you know, the, the puddle who wakes <laughs> up and says, um, oh, this hole is perfectly suited for me. And uh, people think this is a very clever, devastating objection. But, um, I mean, of course it's true that... It's obviously true that we wouldn't be here to know about it if the universe was fine-tuned, but it's it's hard to see why that makes a difference to the argument. It's 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 still okay. It's it's still incredibly improbable the fine-tuning, and it still seems like that cries out for explanation. And when we put the argument in more precise Bayesian terms, you know, it's just hard to see why why that what's often called the anthropic principle that, you know, if the universe hadn't been fine-tuned, we wouldn't have been here to know about it, what, why that makes a difference. And a lot of people are... So I don't think it's a particularly popular objection in the literature, because I think, and also because I think a lot of people are impressed by... Um, what's his name? The firing squad analogy by... Oh, God, a really big philosopher on fine-tuning. My mind's gone blank on now. But, uh, you know, he said, well, imagine, you know, you, you, you're about to be executed. That's, I don't know, five people about to shoot you and they all miss. You think, OK, God, that was a bit weird. And they reload and they keep missing. And, they, you know, there's really good sh trained sh shotsmen. They keep missing you. And you think, oh, my God, something's going on here. That either, you know, this is a fake execution or, you know, something's going on it's just too much of a coincidence but of course you could say well if they had hit me i wouldn't be here to know about it so um so maybe i should maybe i shouldn't think it's a fluke well that's true but it still thinks you still think that something needs explaining here so although having said that there are some people uh elliot sober who's a you know really good philosopher on this area who does develop 
that kind of response to the fine tuning. So it's not it's not that no, you know, serious thinkers here develop that view. But anyway, yeah, simulation hypothesis. This is much explored in um, David Chalmers' recent book aimed at general audience, Reality Plus. And um, it, but it was originally, I mean, maybe not originally, but w one key argument for it is the argument Nick Bostrom gave in the noughties for the uh, simulation hypothesis which is it independently of all this all this fine tuning stuff uh his reasoning was look at as technology advanced as advances as ai advances at some point we're, we're going to get lots of universe simulations we're going to get lots and lots of simulations because the it will be so easy to do and there's going to be an interest to do it and so at some at some point there's going to be lots of simulations of universes like ours in the future and those simulations of universes like ours are, are presumably going to massively outnumber the number of concrete physical real universes let's say just one and so if you're thinking across all of space and time there's going to be vastly more simulated universes than there are real physical universes and then it just becomes a sort of probability game well how likely is it that we are in the one universe that's actually physical rather than one of the simulated ones. So that's, it's a very interesting argument. And um, I suppose my response to it is, it, it, one assumption of the argument is um, that a computer simulation would be conscious. That's, that's a very crucial uh, consideration in the argument. Whereas I'm inclined, inclined, inclined to think that actually simulating consciousness would not itself produce consciousness, real feelings and thoughts. So a computer simulation of my brain, even with all the detail, wouldn't have my consciousness. I guess in the way a, a computer simulation of a hurricane isn't really wet. And um, and this is something I argued with David Chalmers on, on my podcast, Mind Chat. Quick plug. Uh, when I had him on, we, we argued back and forth about this. So that would be my problem with it. But I, actually, I think it could be a good explanation of fine-tuning, setting that worry I've just given on one side. Uh, y your worry was, which is which is a good one, is, you know, well, wouldn't the problem reoccur? Because they, we then have to ask, uh, how did the, the universe of the simulator be, be, get to be fine-tuned? Well, I think, I think what you could say is, well, maybe their universe isn't fine-tuned. Um, because, fi look, fine-tuning... We, it's a recent discovery that for life to be possible, our, the numbers in physics have to fall in this narrow range, right? That wasn't obvious. It could be in the simulator's universe that the numbers in physics didn't have to fall in a narrow range. Maybe physics was more flexible and also, you know, most kind of constants in their physics would have, would have given rise to life. So obviously the, the simulator's universe is going to be life conducive, but it doesn't, it's, it doesn't follow that... Um, their universe has to be fine-tuned in this very specific way in order to be life-conducive. So, yeah, so I think it is a good, um, intriguing response to the argument, but I have these worries about whether a simulation would really be conscious. Um, good on the destiny point, actually, sorry, just before, it was, it's an interesting one to raise. And, uh, you know, Chalmers suggests for people who have very blessed lives, uh, you know, that they should really expect maybe they're in some kind of simulation. Or one thing I worry about is maybe you know maybe all of us are we're really in some utop some utopian future 
where we've cured all the ills of the world and you know there's no problems you know there's no but we're really bored <laughs> there's, not, there's nothing left to do so maybe we plug ourselves into simulations um and live out lives of people from the past uh as a bit of fun and then you'll get you get to your deathbed and it'll say game over and you'll be back to this boring sort of future utopia and you know if you've got if you've got a very life full of suffering that's probably unlikely that you chose that but if you've got quite a happy life where you know you're doing what you want to do interesting things happen maybe 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 this is you should take seriously that this possibility that you you're uh you, you've voluntary, voluntarily put yourself in some kind of simulation. Anyway, fun things to think about. Absolutely. I find it... Um find it really interesting because you I mean you could argue that if, if somebody has a life of suffering that's um <laughs> not that they deserve it because that's really cruel but that um it could be a, some sort of a recompense for something they've done in this other environments they've they've had to go in because you know either for some sort of punishment potentially or uh, because um to become a certain thing in that place you have to have gone through you know, you've got to serve years of service experiencing certain things you've got like levels to hit and you've got to begin to try and tally all of that up um which is which is an interesting idea but the the other thing i find fascinating is obviously the sort of way we're talking about life the, the way we define this obviously we're, we're talking about carbon creatures aren't we we're saying that you know these these variables need to fall in line for, for carbon being such as ourselves to come about but um we don't know and it's obviously just a hypothesis but there could be you know other forms of life silicon or, or whatever else we want to like stipulate that could or come about in other in other places so this sort of idea that the the original universe where simulations began and we are then therefore simulated that is not actually a carbon-based form of life it is something else that has brought about and played with and found that oh actually you know carbon can can be brought about in these situations let's kind of fine-tune it and hit go and see they play it out a million times and see where they end up how far they get down the road this time do they blow themselves up or not we'll have to see um but yeah i find that really interesting as well that actually um there could be other forms of life um potentially in in other areas of of the universe or potentially even you kind of if, if we are simulated or we are in some sort of weird um yeah setup that are just different to ourselves have, have you kind of thought much about the sort of um, other versions of life other than just carbon or does that just become so yeah. there's so many rabbit holes then it just becomes not worth thinking through yeah i don't think i don't think all of the fine tuning is just about getting carbon based life so some of it is but at the, at the same time there is something pretty special about carbon it's not just kind of the stuff we happen to be made of um I mean, I talk about this in my book. I can't remember offhand the the specific details, but I think that the, the chemical flexibility of carbon vastly surpasses um, other other chemical compounds. So, so there is something very special about carbon, and it is harder to see how you get complex life without carbon. And there has to be very special things to happen to get carbon. You have to have stars. You know, carbon's made in um, supernovae of stars. But 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 it's not just carbon. It's it's. I mean, a lot of the fine tuning is about kind of any kind of chemical complexity, whatsoever. You know, the strong nuclear force that binds the nucleus of the atom together. You know, if that had been a a bit different, 
um, you would just have... Is it stronger or weaker? A bit weaker, I think. You would have just had hydrogen, the most simple component. And so you would have had, you know, one chemical reaction, uh, very, very... You know, no chemical complexity whatsoever. And also, I mean, the, well, the example I gave before, if either the universe collapsed back on itself after a split second or, or everything shot apart too quickly to clump anything together, so no two particles ever meet. Uh, so, you know, I think it's, it, it, it's more than just about um, carbon-based life. Although, although as you say... Um, it could be that in the simulator's universe, it, it's very, it's much easier to get carbon, or it, or or you can have chemical complexity without carbon. Or so, if we're thinking of other possible universes, that um, we can entertain those ideas. But I think the, the scientific consensus is that in in science as we currently know it, of course, the science could change, you know, tomorrow. But as science as we currently know it, it seems that. Um, you have to have a lot of fine tuning to get any kind of chemical complexity. I think is my understanding. Yeah, no, it makes it makes sense. Um, I find it I find it really interesting. So I, I don't know, I don't know if you've you've experienced this as well, but obviously you're kind of um, you're putting forwards um, a a theory um, which could obviously kind of probably get the backs up of of atheists you know, across the world um, at this this idea that there could possibly be something some we don't know what but something that is beginning to um, it show itself as um, as as godlike to some capacity to set limits upon different variables to ensure that life potentially is directed towards a purpose or a goal. Um, before we jump over to sort of theism and, and suffering and stuff, which I'm I'm much more familiar with, um, would you say that you've come across much pushback in exploring this from atheists, and have you come across much um, excitement from theists as you begin to? Uh, push this idea of of fine tuning, um, yeah, further forwards into the public literature. Yeah, well, I think problem. Everyone hates me. That's the problem. Uh, <laughs> you know, sort of, uh, I, I had this tweet saying, wow. you know, <laughs> I had a tweet. Um, it was just a provocative tweet saying, you know, atheists are in denial about su- fine tuning. Theists are in denial about suffering. You know, we should be putting aside the ideology and trying to find. The middle way. So you know, it was. I, I don't really think that either side is in denial. There are intelligent people on both sides, but that caused that did cause a lot of noise. But I guess a little bit more among the. Sorry, a bit more among atheists. I guess. Uh, you know, among. Not going to mention any names, but some. You know, very, 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 very uh, critical of uh, theists. You know, saying they're sort of idiots and stuff, and then got very worked up by this suggestion of this very very soft critique of atheists but um um yeah so i guess with yeah with both of these things with my work in consciousness and with my work now it's um it's i suppose because it doesn't fit into nicely into either category it kind of it kind of annoys both sides and has there been a has there been theists appreciating that it's I suppose to some extent, some extent, although, although I'm, I'm not agreeing with that view either. So, um, yeah, just every, everyone hates me, but, but <laughs> it's it's kind of fun. There's been, been some true. really, really, really productive conversations and really 
as well as the anger. I haven't had as much anger from this as I did from panpsychism, actually. When I think when panpsychism first was getting talked about. And then it was sort of a wave of host- of anger. You know, certain senior members of the profession getting very annoyed on social media. And then and then when it was when it sort of hung around a few years later and wasn't just a fad that disappeared, there was a lot of anger. So I don't think I'm getting an, a, anything like that. But it's you know, it's nice to shake things up and stop, you know. I, I, lo- I love the debate. I love, you know, YouTube channels on theism and atheism. That's actually what I've really enjoyed getting into these discussions and, you know, getting into that world a bit more. And there's, you know, there's a really great community and stuff. And, and, and seeing there's, you know, kind of moving on a bit from new atheism, you know, there's much more um, collegiate discussions on these things, which is really nice. And But it's nice to, you know, shake up the discussion a bit by... Um, Offering a, a slightly different perspective that doesn't fit neatly into the into the two camps. Absolutely, it's. Uh, I, I think it's important. I think you know, as as someone like Thomas Nagel's done when uh, when he kind of reflects on on materialism and, and pushes against that quite firmly. And he's obviously he's obviously not. I think he's pretty much is 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 an atheist, right? But he kind of pushes against the idea of materialism. Whereas you're not saying that you are a theist now or anything like that. You're but you're still standing in the place of kind of going. Well, let's actually stop and question this a little bit more and and begin to say we need to change our questions to be able to try and produce some more hypotheses to be able to test and see uh, where we can get to which i just think um, i think that's a really healthy thing so um, i have a lot of admiration for that um oh, thank you so switching now to um the i guess kind of more theist issues um you've obviously mentioned the problem of evil um and I, I want to get into that, but just very briefly, I just want to touch on this sort of concept that I've been exploring a little bit, and I'll be releasing an episode following this one, um, looking at this in a little bit more depth for my listeners. But um, so, as, as I mentioned to you before, I, I was a I was a Christian and had lots of um, sort of views around that space. But over time, what I've begun to kind of realise is, um, for theism to be true, and I'll try and get this into a nutshell for us, um, there has to have been a time within history for the individual to a have known that God is real and B, have made an active decision to sever or walk away from their relationship with said God and go about their own way. Um, and for the life of me, the, the more I kind of begin to look at this and, and try and work it through, I'm finding that theism doesn't seem to work because of our evolutionary history. You know, if, if for instance, if, if there was actually a Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve knew God, walked with God, made the decision to eat the fruit of the tree of good, uh, good and evil, uh, and then, you know, obviously the relationship then was damaged and then the idea is that jesus came and restored that right that's the sort of classic christian theology he came as an atoning sacrifice died rose again accepted by god so that we could then once again form a relationship with god but if we then turn around and go actually that story isn't tr- literally true it's more metaphorical or, or, or hyper real uh, as, as jordan b peterson would say hyper real it's the new buzzword um basically what we get to is we get to the situation where there needs to have been within our evolutionary history a literal time where humanity in some form knew of this god and then some form had the ability to sever or damage that relationship and i.e the sin came the fall came and then we needed that sort of restoration from a from a christian figure like you know what he wasn't christian but christ a, a now christian then jewish figure and um, i don't know i've been toying this quite a lot and exploring and writing about it but do you have any sort of gut reactions or, or sort of initial thoughts on that idea yeah that's that's really interesting. I mean, yeah, that 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 kind of kind of sound sounds right to me. Um, I, I mean, I am interested just as a purely at a purely intellectual level of the you know 
these attempts by William Lane Craig and can't remember the name of the other guy to make a a, a scientifically plausible Adam and Eve. How, how you can make it scientifically plausible? You have to think they lived hundreds of thousands of years ago, or I don't know. I can't remember the details. I find that really interesting. I mean, I don't, I don't for 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 a second buy it. So, oh, but you know, if that's your worry, so. Yeah, I, I guess I, I guess I don't buy into the whole thing because of broader issues of the problem of evil. But if that is your worry that that you need a literal fall, then, then yeah, maybe 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 there would be those options of um. I can't. Do you know who I'm talking about? There's William Lane Craig, and then there's someone else who's defended the historical Adam. Um, uh, but I think I mean they. they it sounded to me i mean i don't buy into the whole thing from the start but uh it sounded to me like um you know they're not they're not stupid these guys are they they they've uh you know re- read the science and there is there are scientific ways of possibly making sense of of a, of of a historical adam in, in a scientifically coherent way um i i spoke i have a good conversation with uh Josh Rasmussen is a theist on on the Christian the Christian idealism channel, and um, I mean he's a Christian who, but he's in our discussion of this, he, he of a relationship, he seemed to be saying like maybe God actually asked us if we want to be part of this life, or uh, he seemed to be a bit slip, a bit going back for the whether you know it, it was a counterfactual that if God had asked us, we would consent, or if God literally got our consent. Uh, sort of before we were born or something. Uh, I don't know. So that might, it seemed to be very important that, that, to him that we've con- consented to the suffering of life. Um, something else that's been interesting to me is, um, so, I, you know, I'm definitely an atheist about the Omnigod, but actually talking to very liberal Christians, I, I was invited to speak at the um, German Catholic Philosophy and Theology Annual Conference. And they said, I said, you know, I don't speak German. And they said, oh, don't, don't worry. There'll be... Um, some talks in German, some talks in English. It was all in German, so I, <laughs> I accept my talks. <laughs> but I had some good conversations, and and there, you know, there are these. I mean, my connection was there's a very good panpsychist philosopher who's a Jesuit priest, Gerhard Brunntrup at the Munich School of Philosophy, and uh, he's a, a proponent of process theology, which is something that was inspired by A. N. Whitehead, who was uh, not a Christian but um, inspired some Christians to develop versions of his view, whereas that where they think um God has is not all powerful. Uh and that's a hypothesis I'm open to, as I said before, a sort of designer of limited powers. So you might think of Christianity on this way as, you know, um you know, God wants to make a perfect it's not it's not that we've done something wrong and God is like kicked us out of the Garden of Eden. God, you know, would have bloody loved to create a perfect universe, but the only way God can do that is like Creating a universe with, a, like, in two stages, creating a universe with the right physics that eventually evolves intelligent life, and then when it's evolved enough, kind of coming into a more intimate met- metaphysical relationship with it, which is how they think of the, the the Jesus stuff. It's sort of God and the universe starting to come into harmony. I mean, another person who thought in this kind of way, really interesting thinker, is um, Teilhard de Jardin, the twentieth uh, century. Uh, paleontologist and heretical Catholic priest. I think I think they decided after he died he wasn't actually heretical, 
although they were the church was really horrible to him while he was alive. But yeah, he had this vision of you know we're heading towards God and the universe coming together and going to bring us to this next stage of cosmic evolution. So I'm I'm much more open to these kinds of um, ways ways of making sense of Christianity that um, depart from the omni god. Actually, I mean, Tyre de Jardin. I'm not saying he departed from the omni god. I don't know, but I don't think that's right. But um, yeah, anyway, so lots of different lots of different things there. But but yeah, m- maybe if if your worry was just the um, a historical Adam, I think there are possibilities there. If if that's if that's what you're up for, although I, I still don't think that would fully answer the problem of evil. Will you support when belief dies? Your support enables us to keep having these conversations and improving everything that we do. There are three ways to support When Belief Dies. Firstly, would you rate When Belief Dies in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Audible? Rating us in these spaces boosts our visibility. Secondly, would you share this episode with your family, friends and followers? We grow mainly through word of mouth, so please consider who might find this a helpful conversation and share it with them. Lastly, would you consider supporting the show financially? You can support the show on Patreon with a monthly gift or a one-off donation via PayPal or Bitcoin. Everything you give goes directly towards the running and improving of the podcast and YouTube channel. All links are in the description and thank you for supporting the show. Right. Let's get back to this week's conversation. No, it wouldn't wouldn't answer problem of evil at all. I think it, it kind of kind of it does answer some of the issues around the idea of um, kind of where the decision point was made for sin to then enter within the sort of classic Christian framework. But then we still have absolutely no evidence that that these two people would have known God and therefore could have made a decision on behalf of you know everybody else spanning from them that they yeah you know we all decided because of them that it all fell through so I, I i kind of like it because they're creating this idea to to help people who might be struggling in that space to go look this this could have happened if you need to, to be real this is the sort of mathematical probability that there was an original couple that we've all come from eventually um because you see humanity that time and time again you see us get spread out and then we have to come back due to some sort of cataclysmic event that we spread out again and we've you know we've definitely been on the been on been on the knife edge of, of failing to be around uh, quite a few times um so there could have been a chance where there's you know only a few in terms of how big we are today a few much smaller group um so yeah i, I kind of see how they could come about with it but at the same time this this idea of actually yeah, i think if you i think william lane craig says if, if you sorry if william lane craig says if you go if you go back far enough it it does make it does make a lot of sense that there could be a a couple who is who are the sole progenitor of the human race. Is that right? Or or the other guy says the other guy they're not the sole progenitors, but so the the other guy doesn't whose name I can't remember. He does he wants it to be more in the period where Genesis seems to be in in the Bible. No, it's it's still much earlier than that. Anyway, he he has a less old Adam and Eve. And um, so they're not the sole progenitors of humanity, but they are the an- the ancestors of all of us in the mix. <laughs> so so they're kind of their DNA is in us or whatever. And apparently that is you know be- as you say because pop- population is was so small back then that is apparently uh, scientifically plausible. Um, as I say, I don't I don't buy into any of this, but. I like it as a, a kind of intellectual game to sort yeah. of, wow, 
wow, could, can we make, you know, scientific sense of Adam and Eve? No, that's cool. I like that. Um, so I guess flipping on then to the to the problem of evil, um, one of those rare things that I think no, there, there just isn't, there isn't a good answer for this that I've seen, done a lot of reading in the space. Um, and I think the way that I define it is, um, and then you can let me know how you define it, we can go into that, is basically... Um, looking at the um evolutionary record looking at the um the sheer amount of death and horror and pain and suffering that has come about it seems um an all-loving god um wanting to I- engage with uh, a conscious being of some description and we believe that's hu- humans in our current form but potentially other hominini before us um has allowed this sort of cataclysmic events to take place i.e the evolutionary process of consistent death suffering purposelessness horror and then kind of we come about and we're still within this pain suffering thing and i think for, for me what i find really interesting is um i'm not a big proponent of it but i really find the idea of stuff like antinatalism to be actually quite a good way to look at the problem of evil because uh an antinatalist would turn around and say you know the 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 value one gets from life isn't worth against the, the sort of the, you, the sort of debt you get from the suffering doesn't pay enough. There isn't enough worth with against the, the enough worth in pleasures and enjoyment against the debt of suffering and, and pain that one experiences. Therefore, is it right to bring humans into the world and actually potentially not if you're an antinatalist? I'm not saying I am. I just find it an interesting puzzle piece as we've been mentioning to look at the problem of suffering because if we are saying that even just on an individual basis the suffering doesn't outweigh or doesn't help towards the the pain. The pain doesn't outweigh the suffering, basically, then that's interesting. But also the sort of, you know, evolutionary span I find to be one of extreme horror and suffering until we even get to some conscious being that would be viewed as being able to engage with a god. So that's how I view it. But obviously, Philip, you're the one writing the book. How do you define it and how do you explore it? Mm. Well, I, I agree that I think that is maybe the biggest aspect of it the why would it why would an, a being who can do anything choose to create us through such a horrific process like evolution by natural selection and you know and there are specific i mean nature is so beautiful but it is so full of suffering and you know there are familiar examples people give of you know the weevil i can't remember which kind of weevil that um paralyzes its prey and then slowly eats them alive while they're still conscious for days you know it's just you know so maybe in the case of humans we can give these what theodicies these explanations about free will or moral development or something i don't find them even plausible there but how that doesn't explain the weevil (laughs) i don't know or it just it, it on the face of it, it seems. I mean, the, so the way I set it up, so there are these debates about um, the logical problem of evil versus the evidential problem of evil. In, so in the old days, people used to try and show that this, the existence of evil was logically inconsistent with the existence of God. And then there was a move, partly the influence of Alvin planting it to say that's, that's a bit too strong you know that we can't know with logical certainty that god doesn't have reasons um for allowing evil all we can say is you know probably there wouldn't be any good reasons probably god doesn't exist 
the way I set it up is 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 slightly different to either. I, I start with what I call the cosmic sin intuition in my new book, which is um, the intuition that it would be immoral for an all-powerful being to create a universe like this. That's that's the intuition. With and and I make it vivid by coming back to the simulation hypothesis. So let's say in in the future it is possible to quite quite easily to create simulated universes and and let's say for the sake of discussion simulate simulated creatures are conscious presumably if the civilization was reasonably civilized they would have ethical boards to determine when you can you know create a universe if you you know you have to apply for them if you want to create a universe for some experimental purpose and suppose someone you know says oh, i'm going to create a universe a simulated universe like the one we live in. I think the ethics board would say, what, are you joking? What, with all, look, there's hurricanes and suffering and weevils eating. They, what, that's terrible. You can't create that. And they could try and say the things Richard Swinburne or, you know, says, oh, you know, but creatures would morally develop. And I think, you know, they'd laugh them out of the, 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 the office. Um, so... Now, so, 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 how does this fit in? So, I'm not saying we know with logical certainty the um, this cosmic sin intuition that it's wrong, but to, it would be it would be wrong for an all powerful being to create a universe like this. But it seems to me a pretty solid intuition. That's all, you know, as solid as any other moral intuition, and I think is very good reason to believe it, uh, even though we, we can't know for certain. Maybe there's factors we, we, we are not open to us, but all we can ever do is, like any moral proposition, try and make the best guess we can, and it seems pretty solid to me. And it does logically rule out God if that if that proposition is true, that it would be immoral for an all-powerful being to create a universe like this. That does logically entail. So I don't know with logical certainty there's no God because I don't know with logical certainty that proposition is true. But if it's true, it, it logically follows God doesn't exist. But um, just you just finally, I mean, you can comment on that if you like. But just finally on the um, antinatalism issue, I also discuss. I start I start off my book talking about antinatalism, which is fascinating and depressing. And but that actually does make a difference to the God of Limited Powers possibility. So, so the God of Limited Powers possibility is, you know, um, the idea would be the Omni God. It, can't exist because they could the omni god could have created a better universe right but if there's a god of limited powers maybe maybe they this is the only way they can create intelligent life so that you know as i say god is like oh i'm sorry about the weevils and everything but this this is the only way i could create life now, if you're an antinatalist you'd say well, you still shouldn't have done it because it's not worth it uh but i think i you know i'm i'm not old at the end of the day an antinatalist i do think it's it's better to have life with all the suffering than none at all. So I do hold out some possibility for the designer of limited powers. Um what what about what about you, Sam? Do you think that's a possible a possible solution? A god of limited power? Mm. It's interesting. I think I, I really like um Stephen Law in this space. He he has the sort of um the, the evil god hypothesis. Um, which I find interesting because it's it's the same sort of thing. There's there's you know if you if a yeah. god wanted to inflict conscious suffering on individuals and and you know essentially the planet with you know life forms etc um 
creating something which is finely tuned, which brings about conscious creatures and introducing suffering in the way that we experience it today, um, weirdly makes a lot of sense. Like you can, you could begin to see, and I know that he, he used it to kind of um, then push back against the Christian God and hope they're kind of cancel, cancel each other out and where we're not saying that particularly, but um, the idea of a God of limited power um, or a God who is trying to deliberately um, cause certain events to take place to uh, bring about pain or suffering or or whatever it is um i think it's very hard to argue against um you know especially as as a theist wants to push back and go no it is it is, it is a loving god um but actually if it's not a sort of the, the classic omni or powerful god that we're we're therefore supporting because they could have created a better universe the idea of your loving god here which is the sort of christian motif and not you but the theists loving god here and the sort of classic evil god or or vicious god or um incompetent god potentially a, a limited god um it, those two go to battle and i find that that's a really interesting space like what is really begin to look at it what is the difference between a a not very powerful loving god who's messed things up and a deliberate malevolent evil god who is trying to bring about suffering i think you for me that the, the scales don't it's really hard to then judge that well it's almost like either camp is 50 50 right you've just got to take your pick and go with it and you can probably add other areas to it to kind of make it make it rebalance but um yeah i don't know what what's your thoughts on the potential idea of like a of, of the evil god hypothesis and then how that would fit in with this idea of a sort of limited power and scope of a divine being yeah yeah well i, I talk about that as well in my book it's it's been so fun exploring all these possibilities i'm really looking forward to hopefully people reading it and talking about it and stuff talking about it with people um yeah, so I think I think the problem with the evil god is, and this is what Stephen Law talks about. Um, it's it seems to have the mirror the mirror image problem, the problem of the good. <laughs> if there's a evil god, why do they why do they allow such wonderful things, love and you know the smile of a baby and <laughs> um, and you could make up, you know, anti theodicies, you know. Um, you know, to explain why the evil God, so theodicy is, for people who don't know about this, that, you know, the the term for trying to explain why God allows evil. But if you believe in an evil God, you could have an anti-theodicy to try and explain why evil God allows goodness. And, you know, maybe they, maybe they allow goodness because you only really suffer once you've had some good things, then then it can be taken away from you. Or, or maybe a free will theodicy, you know, the evil god wants us to do terrible things but you can only do really bad things if you have free will and then unfortunately you give people free will they're sometimes going to do nice things you know you just got to accept that so th and um i guess i feel both are sort of as as stephen law does actually i feel both of them are as, as as bad as each other so he uses that to argue that uh the good god doesn't exist because he thinks Bad God is kind of implausible and good God is sort of kind of the, the the mirror image of that. So we should think good God is implausible. I'm not sure that argument totally works, but I think I, I think it's a better explanation is that is a, a limited God because it's it seems to just avoid the problem. Really, it's just. You just say, no, God's good, trying to get a good universe, but w with limited ability. So this is the only way they can do it is by. And what you said, well, why take the idea seriously at all? Because of the fine tuning, amongst other things, you know, that they, 
they were limited in the kind of physics they could create. Maybe they can only create from a singularity, like from simplicity. They can't sort of create complexity, ex nihilo. Um, so that, that that seems to me um, that or the simulation hypothesis seem to me um, good possibilities for a designer. But as I say, there are there are other other options on the table here, like um, teleological laws that don't have any kind of conscious mind at all. Or just the universe has some kind of mental life. So uh, something in this ballpark. I think I was going to say something else, but it's gone. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> that's all good. There's lots lots to look at here, I think. Um, oh, to, oh, just that's what I was going to say. Sorry, just an, another good. Tim Mulgan defends a sort of a good God that doesn't give a shit about humans. Uh, his, his book, that's an inspiration for my book in some ways. Uh, Purpose in the Universe by Tim Mulgan. It's a hard book. It's like it's like an academic book, but uh, he's like me. You know, he's influenced by. He thinks the arguments for God are good. The arguments against God are good. So then he has this. He calls it ananthropic purposivism, that there is purpose in the universe, but it's nothing to do with us. Right? The universe is not. We're just a byproduct. The universe is. God doesn't care about us. God's going for some better thing, and we're just a sort of accident on the way anyway sorry i interrupted you there i think maybe there's a bit of a delay but go on. yeah no it's, it's, it's all good i am um, that's really interesting i need to read that book i'll check it out um so i guess the sort of next bits to look at then would be i mean it's probably around theodicy so we've kind of we explored quite heavily the concept of um fine-tuning but it'd be good as well to kind of hear um you know christians will kind of go but why don't you look at this more in depth so so let's do that sort of what are the sort of classic theodicies placed um to answer the idea of a sort of um, a God that allows evil and suffering to be within this world. Um, and how do they not make sense for you? I'm, I'm aware why they don't make sense for me, but I guess kind of, you know, the classic things being sort of free will that we need to be able to have uh, a universe where these things are tangibly possible for us to then be able to pick and make a decision to move further and further towards um, a God if they're real. Um, and another one kind of uh, looks at the idea of sort of soul making. So the idea that you need to have um, the evil suffering that we have present for us to then be able to, um, I guess, culminate enough within us throughout our lives so that when we depart, our souls go to rest within the, you know, the, the, the abode of God, heaven, whatever language you want to use, that they're, they're, they're two that are quite often spun around the idea of free will, uh, having conscious creatures making actual decisions to follow God and around the idea of soul building or, or person building that we need to go through this shit because that will mean we can actually go to God one day. Um, and are there any other theodicies that you've come, kind of come across that are maybe may better arguments than those, but why don't they make sense to you? That'd be really interesting, I think. Yeah, so I think there are two ways of responding to the problem of evil. One is to construct a theodicy, an explanation of why God allows evil. The other approach that's perhaps become more popular in recent times, so-called sceptical theism. Sceptical theists say all the explanations are terrible. I mean, you hear Alvin Plantinger, actually, he just, he has no, he thinks all the, he's, he's, he'd listen to him, it sounds like um, an atheist or something, he says, you know, all these theodicies people come up with are all absolutely terrible uh so we have no good explanation but they try to argue um we shouldn't expect to know why god allows suffering because you know god's so much more cognitively sophisticated than us anyway that's an interesting strategy i don't think it ultimately works out but it's it's trying to say you know 
even though we can't give an answer, we shouldn't expect to be able to give an answer. And so it's like um, the analogy they sometimes give if you you're standing on a ver- on a skyscraper, you look down on the floor, you can't you can't see any ants on the the pavement. Does that mean there are no ants? Well, no, because you you wouldn't expect to know to <clears throat> to see the ants if there were any. So they try to argue we wouldn't expect to know God's reasons for creating the universe, and so you know the fact that we don't have a good explanation shouldn't shouldn't give us any we can't infer anything from that. Anyway, that's but just st- staying on theodicies for a moment. Soul making. Um, so that was the theodicy of uh, John Hick, who's actually my my first year as an academic at the University of Birmingham. I went to do. He, he used to give have talks every week in his front room, and uh, I gave one of my first talks in his front room. He's a really lovely guy. He's actually the PhD supervisor of William Lane Craig. They are two very very different individuals. You know, I think John Hick was got kind of a very left wing, very liberal Christian. He sort of thought all faiths are just metaphorical ways of getting at the same truth. And uh, he believed in reincarnation. That was part of his soul-making theodicy. You know, what we don't perfect in this life, we, we perfect in another life. Um, probably, I think, you know, the most, perhaps the most elaborate theodicy is Richard Swinburne. You know, I think Richard Swinburne is, is a very interesting philosopher in lots of ways. I think he was the first person to really bring Bayesianism into philosophy of religion and so he's a very interesting figure. Um, but it's the Odyssey. So it's kind of like, it's kind of close to soul making, but I, I guess he thinks that the alternative would be a sort of Disneyland where, you know, there's no serious choices and there's no serious, you never, you never, there's no suffering to feel compassion for. So he thinks, you know, okay, so it's not, You'd have you could have free will in Disneyland, but it's you know it's not really a meaningful life. So you need a a wider range of free choices, and you need some natural evil and suffering for those. So it's only if people suffering that I can feel compassion and that I can choose to help them and be courageous and risk my life. And so anyway, that's what he thinks. And you know, I, I can see the force of that. And um, my my response in my book is to say. Yeah, I can see the force of that, that there are some goods that we have access to, like the possibility of being courageous and being compassionate that you wouldn't have in a more perfect universe. But it seems to me the value of those goods is greatly lessened if if they're just give, created by God for the sake of giving us challenges, it, that sort of creates a kind of artificiality. <laughs> you know, so I have this story, I imagine, you know, I'm walking home from work and there's a burning building and there's a, a, a baby screaming in the window of the burning building. And so I bravely, you know, climb up the pole, pole, telegraph pole and jump on the roof and jump in the burning building and rescue the child, jump to the ground and, Everyone cheers, and then camera crew come out and say, "Oh, you've won first prize in, you know, the courageous game show." And you know, the whole thing was set up as a sort of test to see if I'd be brave. And that seems like, oh God, that really—that's kind of sick, <laughs> and it kind of really makes it, you know, makes it feel kind of dirty now. You know, makes it feel kind of really artificial. So yeah, um, I don't, and you know, I just. Richard Swinburne is quite interesting because he considers the possibility of 
even if it was even if it's a it's good to have those things does god have the right to use people in that way and i think it's quite credit to him that he that he take he considers that he he thinks god is he has a very kind of very anthropocentric idea of god he thinks god is subject to moral obligations and he thinks it's a moral question for god do i have the, does god have the right and um and i don't it's credit to him that he raises that but i don't think he really gives a good answer to it that you know and it, it does end up feeling but he just kind of say things at some point like you know if it were not for the holocaust lots of people wouldn't have been able to feel compassion and it's just like i don't it just starts to feel a bit a bit sick in some way and uh, there's a good discussion on um the unbelievable podcast him swinburne versus um bartem and and getting into these things but so it just does end up sounding a bit and I mean, I suppose finally, sorry, I'm, t- I'm talking along, I'm, I'm talking a bit too much now, but just finally, I suppose if there was, I, I just, another thing is I just don't see any good argument to think the designer, if there is one, would be all powerful. You know, the fine tuning doesn't give us any reason, coming back to where we started, it doesn't give us any reason to think the designer is all powerful. So maybe if there was a good argument that the designer is all powerful, then yeah, maybe we'd try and find some clever theodicy. But there is in in the absence of that then you just take the evidence on face value you just think you know the designer isn't all powerful or one of these other options or i i just you know don't see why we should it's like so i feel like both the the, the atheists are trying to find clever ways around fine tuning the theists are trying to find clever ways around suffering just just accept you know, you, you, don't, you can avoid both problems by one of these middle way positions. That's sort of how I think about it. So it was a bit long winded. No, man, that's really good. Really, really good. I am. Um... I, I, this is a fascinating space, right? I think it, it makes a lot of sense. I think there are um, uh, people just like camps, right? They like to know that they're within a certain position. They have uh, in groups and out groups. They can clearly identify as something. They can have a label that enables them to uh, recognize other people within their space, and they can then formulate ideas around it and try and come up as a collective to argue against things like you know fine tuning or uh, you know against um, you know the 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 evil god hypothesis or against uh, the problem of evil if they're, if they're a theist they can begin to come together and try and find as many iteratives of an argument as it takes to get as close to a satisfactory solution to make them feel okay within their space and I, i've always said i think it's really good to be able to walk the line of uncertainty and an exploration to turn around and say this space of not knowing enables you to ask further questions and to push oneself in a more interesting dynamic because you begin to go what if there is a a god of limited power what does that actually mean and this is going to be the sort of kind of one of the questions i wanted to to kind of chat to what does that mean for the way we live what does that mean for the way we pursue these sorts of debates and conversations so i guess kind of landing us here philip at the very end is kind of now we have this space of of possibility this this sort of middle ground where um, there could be some form of a god who is limited in some description or some being or you know one of these sketches that you brought for us at the very start um different yeah different theological views like how how do we 
or how should one move forward from this place? Like, what is it? What is this conversation giving us that we didn't have before? And what's it going to enable us, uh, us to do as we go forward, trying to explore it more thoroughly? Yeah, it's a really good question, and I I think you're right. I think I think the um the an, the antagonisms are getting a little bit less, and there is more of a fruitful engagement and. There was a, re- a survey out recently, actually, on um, religion and science. Actually, people's views on religion and science, and there is a, although there is a sort of broad, broad um, um, belief that there's some antagonism there or some conflict. The sort of Dawkins type, very intense hostility towards religion is getting less, and I, I think that's a good thing. You know, I think life's complicated, philosophy's complicated you know trying to work out what the truth is is complicated and i think we should uh be patient and understanding of you know even if if you sounds crazy to us that people can these these issues are complicated and people reach very different conclusions so i suppose if if you're just talking about um the debate the discussions i think it's it it's good to shake things up by having a position that's not in the established norms and 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 i think the two traditional sides should should appreciate that that alternative challenge and it might open up more questions and more possibilities you know and i think there is already um a productive dialogue emerging out of that I think that's how things move forward isn't it by not just that's what philosophy is all about really isn't it not just taking the established answers that are offered to us i always say this to students you know this is every essay question gives you assumes some terms of debate but this is philosophy you could question them it might be slightly harder to give a good essay and get a good mark in that way but if you can do it well that's 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 what philosophy is all about but also i mean i guess the final chapter of my book like the final chapter of my last book galileo's error discusses the implications for human existence so so most of the book is this cold it's just the metaphysical question of arguing that there is some kind of goal directedness at the fundamental level of reality and exploring what that might be in some of the ways we've discussed today but the final chapter is you know what would that mean for human existence and i take a, a again i take the middle way option so some theists like um like William Lane Craig, but also atheists like the antinatalist David Benatar. So lots of themes reoccurring here. They sort of think if there's no cosmic purpose, you know, reality, life is kind of pointless. You know, William Lane Craig also kind of says, you know, we might as well kill each other or, you know, we might as well do what the hell we want. Benatar doesn't, Benatar doesn't think we should kill ourselves, but he thinks we should let ourselves die out, let our species die out. It's immoral to have babies. Uh, Whereas at the, at the other extreme, I think a lot of humanists think it just doesn't matter at all, you know, whether there's cosmic purpose. So my middle way option is is sort of, you don't need cosmic purpose to have a meaningful life, even if, you know, there's there's no purpose, we're in this meaningless universe. You can still obviously live a meaningful life through kindness and creativity and um, intellectual endeavor and so on. But I think the possibility of cosmic purpose offers us perhaps a more, a more meaningful life. You know, I think as human beings, we want to make a difference. I mean, for starters, there is something tragic 
if it all comes to nothing, you know, <laughs> that's not obvious. If there's no cosmic purpose, it'll it'll come to nothing. Or actually, actually it's not obvious the converse either. If if there's cosmic purpose, that that the the universe will last forever. It could be that there's a cosmic purpose, and once it's achieved, the universe will die. Um, so so it's not obvious actually that that those two things go together. But more generally, as humans, we want to make a difference, right? We want our lives to be meaningful. We want to make a difference, and if you could, in some small way, contribute to the purposes of the whole of reality, that's about as big a difference as you can imagine. And um, and I, I articulate, you know, even if you could sort of live in hope, see the good you're doing, live in hope that the good you're doing, in some small way, advances the purposes of reality. Um, I think that can be a very meaningful way of living. I think we can, as we, I agree with William James, that we can... We can hope beyond the evidence to some extent. You know, you don't have to limit yourself to uh, what you can conclusively prove. I think there's there's some rational scope for hoping beyond the evidence. If your prognosis of cancer doesn't look good, you can you can hope you're going to survive. And so so I try to articulate a, a way of living, cosmic purposivism, where you you live in hope that there is some kind of purpose to reality even if you're not entirely sure what that amounts to and that you're contributing to it in some way. And I, you know, I find that a, a deeply meaningful way of living and um, helps me with my ego a little bit. Not that I've got, I've got some, I'm not, you know, I don't think I'm the ma- most egotistical person, but some sense ego and ambition and, but uh, seeing it all in a, in a broader picture um, can kind of help with that a little bit. So, yeah. Hmm. I like that. I like that. And final question then, um, before I let you disappear, um, kind of you, you've been viewing this through a philosopher's lens, which is great. It's been really, really helpful. I kind of guess, um, going to ask you to wear, to wear the profit hat for a little bit. Um, so on this sort of uh, middle road then that, that we're talking about, kind of, you've mentioned about living into this sort of hope and, and, and purpose and meaning. Um, and that's a good way to go about, but do you think at the end of the day that it's going somewhere? Like, do you, do you think there is a road that this story's on that is going to be the final destination point or the final place? Um, or a, a vague sort of, um, you know, there's a road going into the horizon. It gets foggy. We can't quite see where it's going, but it does seem to be going in a direction. Like, do you, does that, is that genuinely your sort of gut reaction? And it kind of, it sounds a little bit like it is from fine tuning, pushing us in a certain direction how you're expressing living life from this place and and also not the classic theistic viewpoints where you know we're going to die and go to heaven because the idea of um even the suffering kind of negates a little bit away from the sort of classic theistic viewpoints so i guess finally wearing wearing the prophet hat for just a moment um would you kind of like help us understand kind of do you think there is um a direction this is going towards that we can have any sort of uh idea of or is it just a position of of, of hopeful inquiry that we're going to be exploring life through yeah, well, I'm a bit wary of adopt, but wearing a prophet hat. But <laughs> to answer the question, uh, <laughs> I honestly do think there's good reason to take seriously the possibility of of cosmic purpose in the sense that there is some goal directedness in the universe, fine tuning, and also c- considerations of consciousness that we haven't talked about. That's probably the most complicated chapter in my book. Why kind of consciousness points to some kind of purpose or goal directedness which 
so, so there, it's it's not just the fine tuning. So I, I I think there's very good reason to take that seriously. Although that doesn't mean I mean it could be. The purpose was intelligent life. We've got there. That's the end of it. But in a way, what it seems a bit improbable that if there is this cosmic goal directedness, that we are sort of at the very end of it. You know, that we are the final endpoint of reality if there is this directedness. It seems kind of more probable that we'll be somewhere in the middle and that there is some greater reality to come. Talked about Tayyar de Jardin before. He he thought some people think he predicted the internet because he thought um you know, he thought there'd been these great leaps of life and consciousness and self awareness and he thought the next one would involve society becoming more informationally connected up. And this would bring about this next stage of life and consciousness that he called the new sphere. Um, so, so I think we can have hope that there is uh, it's it's going somewhere, and it's still on the purpose of is still unfolding, and maybe even the 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 good we do can somehow contribute to that. Although that is getting really into the realms of speculation. Um, but at that point, it is very much hope and faith rather than um, something we can have a solid rational basis, in, intellectual basis for. But, you know, I think that's perfectly fine. I think the, um, I think there is scope for hope beyond, hope and faith beyond the evidence. I mean, here's another analogy. I think the odds of human beings dealing with man-made climate change don't look great. <laughs> so if you're just going off, you know, what you what the evidence suggests, I think you should say we're not going to do it. But it's perfectly reasonable to have faith, to commit your life to the noble possibility that we are going to do it and use that to, as a spare for campaigning or whatever. So similarly, I think, you know, even if we can't conclusively prove that there's purpose still unfolding and we can contribute it to it it's 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 um i still can be rational to commit your life you know you only get one life you've got to live a meaningful happy life and if if that can be one way living in that hope can be a meaningful life and even if it's all bollocks you know and you die and it was nothing or you haven't really lost much so it's a sort of it's a sort of maybe a little bit like pascal's wager but not pascal's wager to try and get to the afterlife but pascal's wager in terms of living a meaningful life now and giving your life some kind of purpose and directionality and coping with your ego and being happy. You know, if you have to sort of hope beyond the evidence a little bit. I mean, there can be limits to this, right? That I think it would be irrational to hope that aliens are going to rescue us from climate change or something, you know, because there's no reason to take anything in that, you know, that possibility seriously. Well, maybe some disagree, but um, but to some extent, I think it's it's rational to to hope beyond the evidence and yeah that's a good way of living your life i think not mm. for everybody i like that it's good it's good yeah yeah well philip there'll be links to you um your books in the description i'm looking forward to your next book coming out next year um it sounds very exciting it sounds like we've hit some of the high notes but i look forward to reading that and probably having you back on to to chat about it maybe with a guest as well um but yeah, Philip, it's been such a pleasure talking today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Sam. It's been really good, actually. It's been a, it's probably the most extensive t description of the of the book so far, actually, I've talked about, you know. So, um, yeah, that's been really nice to 
spell out the ideas. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of When Belief Dies. As always, to leave any comments or thoughts, head on over to YouTube. To follow me on Twitter or to see where else I'm online, check out the links in the description. Thank you to all our regular givers for making this show a reality. And until next time, enjoy the journey.